Hey everybody, this is Josh Getzoff from the Pittsburgh Penguins Radio Network, and I am excited to be first talking hockey with you again. Hope everyone out there is uh, doing well, staying safe, and also happy to welcome you into a five-part podcast series we're calling the Scoop Podcast Rewind. It's presented by PPG, and it'll feature myself as host with insight from Paul Staggerwald, Sam Kassan, and Michelle Crecchiolo as we look back on the Penguins' run to the franchise's third Stanley Cup championship when the Black and Gold defeated the Detroit Red Wings in seven games back in 2009. We hope in future episodes to bring you a podcast that features both a video and an audio element and that was our plan to start here but sometimes technology gets in the way with all of us being in different locations from our homes as we record these episodes still we really enjoyed these conversations especially this beginning one as we took this trip down memory lane and we hope you will as well so without further ado here is the scoop podcast rewind focusing on the 2009 stanley cup final presented by ppg all right, hello everybody. Time for some hockey talk as we welcome you into the Scoop Rewind podcast brought to you by PPG. A little bit of a different setting, a little bit of a different world right now. We're happy to bring you some hockey talk. I'm Josh Getzoff. I'll be emceeing this five-part mini-series. We're going to take a look back at the lead-up to the 2009 Stanley Cup Final for the Penguins and then go all the way through to that Game 7 when they won the franchise's third Stanley Cup a lot of good guests joining us on this podcast. Names and faces you recognize. We'll start with Paul Staggerwald, at the time the voice of the Penguins on Fox Sports Pittsburgh. A wealth of knowledge, 40-plus years with the Penguins family, of course, a part of all those Stanley Cups Penguins have been with. And we have Sam Kassan of Penn's Inside Scoop. Sam was in his first year with the Penguins that year, has since been a part of all three Cups since he's joined. Not going to say he was good luck. Maybe he just was right timing, but he was probably good luck. Sam Casada, <laughs> and then of course <laughs> Michelle Crecchiola, also Penn's inside scoop, who at the time brings an interesting perspective because she lived in Michigan and maybe cheered for the other team, but of course has changed allegiances since. So that's how it's all going to break down, guys. Good to see you again. Great to see everybody. Yeah, it's yeah. been too long. It's been way too long. Great to see you guys. <laughs> Hockey. It should be a fun conversation and kind of lead into everything as as we get you know, going on this front, figuring out our, our video chat situation, but also getting going on the hockey talk, which I think we're really excited about to bring you all this insight and the memories and everything. So let's kind of go back in time, guys. And Sam, I know you wanted to start way before that 2009 Stanley Cup final even began when the building blocks were kind of put in place by this Penguins organization to get them to the core and, and championships since that have been won today. And I think a lot of the story obviously goes back to the rebuild when uh, the Penguins were getting those picks, the Marc-Andre Fleury's, the Sidney Crosby's, the Evgeny Malkins, and putting all those pieces together. And then you kind of saw it flourish in that 2006-07 season. All came together. They had that incredible run during the regular season. Got bounced pretty ugly against the uh, Ottawa Senators who taught the young Penguins a little bit of a lesson that they would use the next year. But then the next season, I think it they really took a big step in um, – I think when they got Marion Hossa, which also will eventually become a storyline, obviously, in the 09 final. But when they got Marion Hossa, I think that's when this team not only became for real, they were obviously very talented, but that's when they were like, this is a legit Stanley Cup contender. But saying, what do you remember from the, uh, the time whenever they, they ended up picking up Hossa? And obviously, they got Hal Gill in the same uh, draft at the same time. Well, what I remember about that time, and, you know, first of all, before I get to that, I just want to mention that in that lead-up that you just talked about, Sam, one of the things that I remember distinctly is Ray Shiro saying the same thing that Jim Rutherford said at that press conference last spring. Uh, he said, we need to be harder to play against. And he got guys like Mark Eaton, Yarko Rutu, Eric Gardard, 
Dominic Moore, Gary Roberts, George LaRock, Max Tyler, Corbley Armstrong came up from uh, from Wilkes-Barre. They got Hal Gill into the mix. He would eventually sign Matt Cook, who was really a you know a physical player. Brian Malone, you know, emerged as a physical force for the Penguins. Tyler Kennedy, despite his size, was a physical great player. So I think the additions of all these role players and all these other guys that came into the mix, along with the stars you mentioned, is really why the Penguins began to become a more competitive team and ultimately a, a really good playoff team. By the time they got to that point where Marion Hosa was available at the trading deadline, you know, everybody has a boss. And Ray Shiro had a boss, too. And his name was Mario. He had two bosses, Ron Burkle and Mario Lemieux. And, and sometimes GMs need to be prodded by ownership. I think oftentimes they're protecting the organization from spending too much money. In, in Ray's case, he was kind of married to a five-year plan. And Ron, Burke had to cajole, Ron Burkle had to cajole, cajole him to make that deal. And, boy, it's really great that they made it. Uh, because Marion Hosa was a world-class player who could immediately play with Sidney Crosby, and he took the Penguins to another level. And I don't know if Ray was necessarily thinking that way at that point, but he needed somebody else to kind of prod him to do it, and, and that's what happened. And by the way, I, wanted, I looked, did a little research, guys. The Penguins, when they got Marion Hosa, traded Angelo Esposito, who they had drafted in the first round, and their first-round pick, and Colby Armstrong, who was a first-round pick. The Atlanta Thrashers... Um, with that pick that the Penguins traded, picked 29th overall the following draft, they took a kid named Dalton Levelier. Never made it to the National Hockey League out of St. Catharines. He was the first junior B player to ever be selected in the first round in the NHL draft. It was a total bust. So that, wasn't he a Michigan State player, I believe? He was. Yes, I was going to say. Job, so but the thing is, Esposito was a bust. That kid was a bust. Colby Armstrong didn't last long in Atlanta, obviously. And the Penguins ended up with not only Hosa, but also Pascal Dupuis. So that was a really amazing trade that the Penguins made at the deadline. It really set them up for a great run in the playoffs, as you said, Sam, with Hosa in the lineup, but also uh, for years to come. Yeah, that was the Pascal Dupuis trade. I mean, Hosa's throwing, right? <laughs> <laughs> and that was out of the line, too. They almost just didn't get it in before the uh, deadline finished, too. Yeah, I do remember that. And, you know, when I look at Hosa and what he did, like he scored, I think, a point a game in the playoffs. Uh, I think he had 12 goals. I remember him scoring a big overtime game winner in the series against the Rangers. Uh, it was the same day that my father passed away. That, I remember it so distinctly because Mike Emmerich said something very nice on TV about my dad passing away, but it was a very memorable afternoon watching that game. Of course, I wasn't calling it. It was on national TV. So, but Hosa was a force, you know, class player, but he was 29 years old and Sid was only 21. And I don't think the chemistry was there between those two guys as people, to be honest with you, because they were so different, different in ages, right? So I, I think that's one of the reasons that he moved on. And I'm, I don't want to get too ahead of ourselves here, but I will say that Michael Terrian was the coach then. And I don't think Marion Hosa was particularly fond of playing for him either. And I think that's why he moved on uh, the following summer. They kind of got the team going, too, and then they had that just incredible run. I think they exercised some demons against Ottawa, you know, swept them after obviously getting embarrassed by them the previous year. You face the Army Yager and the Rangers, go through them pretty easily, like you said, the, the five-game uh, five victory there. And then they face Josh Getzoff, Philadelphia Flyers, in the Eastern Conference Final. Did you even think the Flyers had a shot the way that Penguins team was rolling? Not a chance. That was, that, was, uh, that was probably the main thought on the other side of the state at that time was of all the teams that they could play, most people wanted to play the Rangers. 
because they, they felt like there was a better chance there. But the Penguins were humming along. And I, I think when you guys think about some of the big trade deadline pickups that the Penguins have had and then across the, the NHL for that matter, like if the Penguins would have gone on to win the Cup in 08, would Marion Hosa have been one of the greatest ones ever? Because the, the one that comes to mind for me is Marion Gaberick with the Kings in 2012. I mean, they, they don't win the Stanley Cup if he doesn't come on board in L.A. And I almost wonder with the Penguins, you know, being essentially two wins away in 2008 with Hosa coming on board, that obviously was a great pickup in getting them to that point. But I think it also kind of was a tone setter for them that they maybe were just a player away or just a couple players away from getting to where they wanted to be as an organization. Well, the very fact that he came and, and, and made them a, a true contender, he was another, you know, maybe the big piece of the puzzle that got them to that point. Yeah. If, if he doesn't come, they don't turn into that team, maybe. Out of the playoffs all the way to their experience of having played in the final against Detroit. So it did set them up for the next year. And I don't know if they would have been as good the following year, having not gone through that experience. And they wouldn't have gone through that experience if it's not for the addition of Marion Hosa. So you make a good point. Yeah, they seem to learn a lot of lessons in the 08 final to the nine finals we'll obviously touch on a little bit later but uh yeah they blew through the flyers and then it set up that 08 cup final pittsburgh detroit michelle you're the Pitt, you're the detroit native you're the detroit representative right now uh what was your mindset going into that stanley cup final man it's actually been so much fun reflecting back on that because that was uh the summer between my sophomore and junior year of college and at that point i was just a hockey crazed fan i mean I was playing for Michigan State at the time, um, so and most of my teammates were from the area, so all of us together were just, you know, so into the game, literally, you know, lived it every single day. So we were just all diehard Red Wings fans, and it's so funny to think back on that time, especially after being with the Penguins now for almost 10 years. Uh, it's been a lot of fun going down memory lane, but uh, I just remember it was just a great time for Red Wings hockey. I mean, they were in the midst of that, you know, historic uh, streak of making the playoffs consecutive years, and they had just won in 2002 with that. I mean, incredible team. You guys remember that. I mean, it was just stacked with Hall of Famers. Uh, so, you know, at that point, Henrik Zetterberg and Pavel Datsuk were at the primes of their careers. And, you know, for us growing up in Detroit, they were our Evgeny Malkin and Sidney Crosby. I mean, those two guys were uh, the cream of the crop for us. And there were so many other players, too. Um, it's been fun. I was telling Sam the other day to watch Thomas Holmstrom, uh, the original Patrick Hornquist, uh, the net front presence, probably the best to ever do it. Uh, it's just funny to see him do the same things that Patrick Hornquist now does. Uh, you know, the, the 08 team was just, there were so many incredible players on that team, and they were just. Yeah, I took a fan as I was the Penguins. I, I wanted them to win, obviously, but I didn't give them much of a chance against that Red Wings team. I mean, they were just operating like complete machinery. I don't, I don't know, Saggy, what you thought uh, heading into the series with the Penguins opportunity was or, the, or their chance of winning. Well, Mike Babcock was their coach. You know, Zetterberg was a great player at Pavel Datsuk. They had Nicholas Lidstrom, maybe the yeah, great Yeah, Nicholas Lidstrom. How could I forget to mention him? I mean, <laughs> he was they, they were great. They were really well. They, uh, they played like a like a team, you know. They, they And they had a certain quality about them. One thing that really sticks in my mind, and I, I, it always comes to mind right away when I think about that series, is the Penguins were young, and they were emotional, and, and they tried to – you know, do the things you do in the playoffs, you know, get in their faces. And, you know, and, and uh, Sidney Crosby said they never changed the expressions on their faces, any of their players. He said it was creepy. That was the word. <laughs> <laughs> creepy. So they were, they were like stoic, you know, and it was weird. They, I remember people referring to them as the red beards because it seemed like 
three quarters of their team had red hair or red beards, you know. Yeah, the mule, the mule, Johan Franz. Yeah, and the mule was phenomenal in that series, by the way. Yeah, he was. Yeah, an absolute beast. I think he had 13 goals that, uh, in the in the playoffs that year. So I think, you know, really, if you look back on it, you know, it was just a great baptism by fire for the Penguins to, to have been able to play a team like that and kind of learn through osmosis how to play in the playoffs. And I can re- remember as we move on, one thing I, I reflected on, start to play as the next year's playoff run went along. They, they played in, in many ways the way the Red Wings played against them in that series. And I think they learned that you there's another level you have to get to of desperation and commitment to be able to win it all. And the Red Wings kind of taught them that. Hey, let me ask you a question. So, you know, in, in game one of that final in 08, uh, Detroit won 4 nothing, so shutout. Game two, they won three nothing. Another shutout, back-to-back shutouts for Chris Osgood there. Just what was the feeling following those games? Because as we all know, when you are with the team, when you're embedded with the team every day, you know almost when a series is over. Like I remember distinctly having that feeling in 2013 of the Eastern Conference Final against Boston after Game Two that the Penguins were done. It was over, even though they're only down 2-0 in the series. You just felt that there just was something missing. Did you have that same feeling in, in this final, or was it uh, you still felt that they were in it? Well. I remember uh, they always throw around, you know, stats. Teams that lose the first two games of the final series, you know, only two have ever won the cup or some stat, which later, of course, came back the next year, too, in 09. Right. But in 08, we were all very married to those stats because of the, the success the Penguins had had in, in previous cup runs and things. You, you kind of knew that those numbers were are probably going to hold up. And it would be different if you thought the Penguins were the better team, but I think it was hard for us to really believe that we were better than Detroit that year. We hoped we could find a way to win, uh, you know, and that kind of thing. But I, I think in realistically looking at it through our experience and knowing what it takes to win the cup, I do think that there were a lot of people thinking the Penguins can't win this now. And it turned out they didn't. So, you know, they, 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 did, they just weren't ready yet to take that top of the mountain. So but they got close. <laughs> I felt like the playoffs leading into the cup was just too easy in a way, honestly. Like like I said, swept Ottawa, beat the Rangers in five, beat the Flyers in five. But I don't think anyone really challenged them until they got to Detroit in the game one and two. And, you know, it's not a good omen when Marc-Andre Fleury comes out and trips on the carpet and <laughs> he gets rattled and, like, the whole team's a little rattled, you know. just like a drop-down effect. And uh, and I think, I think Detroit punched them in the mouth in those first two games. And with the wake-up call, like, man, this is – you know, nothing against Ottawa and the Rangers and the Flyers, but nobody challenged them the way that Detroit challenged them. And I do think, I agree with Saggy, that was a huge wake-up call. And it showed them what they need to do and how they need to be to win a championship. So it really did lay the groundwork and the foundation. Michelle, I want to ask you something. i got to ask you something because we've seen how hockey has exploded in Pittsburgh. And, uh, you know, they called it Hockey Town. And... uh now that you've had a chance to experience the height of hockey interest in Detroit and the height of hockey interest in Pittsburgh, which city is more into hockey, would you say? That's a good question. I. Oh, way to put her on the spot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I. Who's your paycheck? Compare, you know, compare, the, compare the two cities in the way that they view hockey, however you want to put it. Just, just curious because you've been in both situations. 
Yeah, well, you know, Michigan's always been referred to as one of those hotbeds along with, you know, Massachusetts um, and Minnesota in terms of just the interest from the bottom to the top, you know, the, at the grassroots level all the way to the professional level. And so, you know, that was something I was fortunate enough to experience growing up there. You know, um, the Red Wings organization did an amazing job of, you know, having Little Caesars, which was obviously owned by the Illiches, um, you know, have teams. And so I remember I played for them in high school and we were able to use, you know, the Joe Louis Arena was our home base. And so we practiced there, we played there. Um, you know, so I think that was there. And maybe it wasn't here in Pittsburgh from the start. But now I think in Pittsburgh, you have that interest from the grassroots level all the way to the top, obviously, starting with, you know, there was a Lemieux boom and there was a Crosby boom. And so I think it's just, you know, now with this amazing facility, the UPMC Lemieux Sports Complex, I think that Pittsburgh is right on par with Detroit in terms of having, you know, not only the interest in their NHL team, but also in hockey in general. So um, I think, but I can tell you, it, it is fun thinking back and like what it was like being a fan of Detroit, because I actually was, um, you know, how the Penguin Toast watch parties uh, for the away games in the playoffs. I was in Joe Louis Arena for Joe Vision for game six of that 2008 final. And I was wearing my Red Wings jersey. I was <laughs> watching the video board along with 20, thousand other fans in the arena and it was so much fun but I think you know the I would say it's it's definitely on par um you know hockey town and Pittsburgh has become a hockey town and it's been a lot of fun to see to have grown up in one and now the other I think were you uh were you at game five in Detroit oh. I was not uh, no but I did I did I, I just I watched with all my teammates I remember that so distinctly and then uh, I was with. See that four point four where, where, where were you, Michelle? When the where were you when the Red Wings won the Cup in Pittsburgh in Game Six? Oh, I remember exactly where I was. I was in this apartment complex called Cedar Village. Uh, you guys might have heard of it. We're somewhat famous for couch burning uh, <laughs> during some of the Michigan State athletics, uh, you know, victories. But um, I was with my friend uh, Jake Sharing, who's actually playing for Michigan State men's team at the time so it was a lot more low-key watching that year I think we had a feeling that it wasn't going to have the same result as 08 and people were just leaning out their car windows you know screaming cheering um so it went from that to kind of just watching with one other friend in an apartment building uh just I having a feeling that it wasn't going to go the same way I think as the year before so um you know definitely 08 was the peak for, for us Red Wings fans and then it was almost all downhill from there I would say it was all downhill but I was asking game five specifically because it was 34.3 seconds away from Hoisting the cup on home ice, and then Max Max Talbot, who would come to haunt Red Wings for, for not many years to come, uh, shows up on the doorstep and is able to slam that one in and just preserve that. And then, actually, the, the thing I remember most that was uh, Peter Sikora after he scored the game winner, because obviously Little Caesars is the pizza. And uh, at the press conference after the game, uh, Sikora about staying hydrated because it went triple overtime. You know, getting fluids and. and Saying right, and, and asked him what he did in between periods. Kind of prepared, said, "Oh, I ate Domino's pizza." The biggest, the biggest insult he could throw. <laughs> Great shade. You know, I have this memory. When I think of the Joe Louis Arena, number one, it was old, uh, you know, really old building, and uh, down in the bowels of it, uh, there was no place for the players to do their soccer thing before the game or to work out or anything. So they had to put all the bikes and, and the players had to do it out in that hallway outside of the hallways that lead down to the locker rooms and the media were all there and then they had all the tables set up for the media the extra media uh was cordoned off not far from there so there was just just convergence of reporters <laughs> players 
and all with this disgusting smell of garbage. Yes, the bathroom smell. Joe Louis Arena, when you go anywhere down in that area, it's just, it's a horrible, that smell of like uh, dumpsters. You know, you know what I'm talking about? And <laughs> with, with on top of that smell, the, the, you know, the antiseptic that they use to try to prevent the smell. It's, yeah, I always remember the heat chemicals. It's definitely a home ice advantage for Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, does it make you lightheaded before you play? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm standing, yeah. I, I'm standing down in that area, and I, the, the, the players are coming off in the middle of one of the overtime periods. And Scotty Bowman walks by me. He's down there because he's part of the Red Wings organization, right? And he walks by, and he says, Garage League. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget it. He just looks at me and he goes, Garage League. <laughs> remember what Mario had said many years before. It was just so okay. fun. I mean, you know, that's the part about Scotty that a lot of people don't realize is that he does have that awesome sense of humor. But anyway, that was that was a classic, uh, classic moment. Yeah. You, you work at the Red Wings, too. You had to remember that uh, smell of cleaning chemicals and uh, oh. straight garbage. Oh, yeah. Well, so I interned there my last semester of college. So that was spring 2010. Doing essentially what I'm doing now, I was an intern reporter. But for whatever reason, our office was literally in the Zamboni gate while the rest of the front office was, you know, down the hall away from the smell, away from the Yeah, we were trapped, but it, it, so it was an interesting uh, place to be. But I always loved, you know, any time in the following years when we went back uh, and, you know, people would ask the players who had been on that um, 09 team, which I'm sure we'll talk about later, but, you know, asking them what they remember most, you know, like, just being in that locker room where they celebrated. And Mark Andre Fleury would always say, without fail, the bathroom smell. Here, <laughs> <laughs> game five point. Having now been through, you know, the 16 and 17 championships, I would say, I think as Red Wings fans, game five had that same feeling that game five against San Jose had in 2016, just that inevitability that, you know, even though they weren't able to get the job done, you knew they were going to get the job done in game six, which I think is a big reason why I made the trip down to Jolo Serena to watch the game there, knowing that I was going to see them win. It's, it's interesting how, you know, there's so many parallels between championship teams in terms of you just know when they're going to win and you know when they're going to lose. And I think that everyone in Detroit that were fans of the Red Wings knew that there was no way this team was going to be stopped, especially by, you said, like a team that almost, you know, breezed right through and just wasn't quite ready, I think, to, to be – um, to take that next step, I think. And I'll never forget the looks on the Penguins players' faces when they lost. They were all sitting along the boards. They were sitting, watching the Red Wings celebrate, and um, then they got up and you know shook hands with them. But uh, you know, and, and the Penguins came that close to tying the game in Game Six. Yeah, awesome. I, yeah. So hit the outside or missed the outside post. Yeah, and then it didn't happen, and it was just like, oh man, it's over. Like that's it, you know. And now all of a sudden you're seeing the Red Wings hoisting the cup and. You know, we've never seen the cup hoisted on, uh, you know, Civic Arena ice before, and the, but we unfortunately had to watch the Red Wings do that. It was it was pretty sickening actually feeling, and I think it really, you know, it's one of those things that really stuck right in the craws of all the players. <laughs> but when they got an opportunity to get back into that mix, uh, they were they were raring to go and they were determined to win. Um, before we move on, I'll give a quick shout out too, because that was Nick Lishman was actually the first European born and trained player. And first Swedish born and trained player to captain his team to a cup show. That was really cool. You know, having the chance to to intern there and interview him and he really is the perfect human. So I think, you know, and especially too, can you imagine the luxury for a coach to be able to put him on the ice for thirty minutes a game 
and not have to worry about anything. He's just going to get be unflappable, be calm, be composed, and, and just get the job done. So, you know, I, I definitely uh, love seeing that. I know the Penguins uh, players and fans and uh, everyone else did not love to see it. So. You know, another thing uh, that I remember in that series, and I, this would be my last comment about that, was that Michael Terrian was the Penguins coach. And after game four in Pittsburgh, which the Penguins lost, he uh, was complaining, hoping he'd get some help, you know, in the future games in the series about the interfering that was going on on the part of the Red Wings. They were interfering a lot with uh, with the Penguin players all over the ice. It was part of their tactics, and he felt like they were getting away with a lot of stuff that should have been called. He tried to get that message through, but it really didn't uh, didn't resonate too much with the officials. But uh, it, it, it was true, though. The Red Wings just knew how to do all that, those little things. Yep, veteran players. They seemed like the Penguins down. They were really good at it. Yeah, and then, Stag, you talked about the guys, looking the Penguins players, you know, the faces in the – they lost that game six. I remember Ryan Malone just bawling in the locker room because he knew he played his last game as a Penguin in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh kid, he played his last game as a Penguin. That was going to be his best chance to win a cup for his hometown team, and he knew it, and he was beside himself in the locker room. I think of all the images from that, that one really uh, stood out to me. But I think then you look at the situation and you fall to that Detroit team in 2008. And the next step, I guess, from the Penguins' perspective is how do we get back to that point and then take the next step and win the Stanley Cup? And it probably did not involve losing the guy that helped you get there, Marion Hosa, but that was what happened in the subsequent offseason is he not only leaves the Penguins, but goes to Detroit. And goes there saying, I'm going because I think they have a better chance of winning the Stanley Cup. He signed only a one-year deal. Right. I still have the sports illustrated with him on the cover wearing his Red Wings gear because we were very excited for him to come and help us win again. <laughs> yeah, but, but in hindsight, that uh, his leaving, because obviously all the money and tenure they were going to give him, Ray offered him a huge contract race year as the general manager. So all the money they were going to give him when he skirted the Penguins and went to Detroit, they were able to re-sign Brooks Orpik with that money. They were able to... Uh, they keep up getting Malkin's uh, bridge contract within reason. I mean, they were able to do a lot of things with that money that they would not have been able to do had Hosa stayed. And so, I mean, I guess hindsight 2020, who knows how it would have played out. Maybe they win a cup with Hosa in, in some of the moves that they make. But, you know, and, and maybe they have a great run with him. Who knows? But I will say uh, his leaving did allow them to do some other things with their money and their cap space. You know, they signed the Mac Cook, as uh, Staggy said, that made them a little tougher to play against some players like that. So, and uh, and uh, so again, hindsight being 2020, I'm sure Marion Hosa would uh, maybe reconsider having the way things played out the way they played out. But uh, in a way, and, and I did think it lit a little bit of fire on the Penguins in their locker room. And this guy, as Staggy said, literally said, quote, I think they have a better chance to win. And, and I think uh, that upset a lot of the guys in the Penguins locker room and, and did give them a little bit of fire going into that uh, 08 or 09 season. That's bulletin board material at its finest. That's <laughs> better than that. And, and, and then actually, it, it, we talk about getting over those humps, those little growth spurts for teams emotionally, et cetera. A big one was in that 0809 season in November, I forget the day of November 11th, maybe. They went to Detroit, and I remember it was a wild game. They won 7 6 in overtime, and Jordan saw had a hat trick in the game, uh, tied it late. And Jordan Stokes sets up Ruslan Fedotenko for the overtime winner to win 7-6. Chris Osgood's the goalie. They beat Hosa. They beat Detroit in Detroit, which I think was a big precursor, obviously. But I think mentally they exercised a little bit of demons. And even though it was a regular season game, 
Uh, clearly, the Detroit knew what was going on, and the Penguins knew what was going on. So both teams came playing, and they came played hard. And Pittsburgh prevailing, I think, went a long way in the future. Obviously, way down the road, but I think it went a long way with them end up uh, getting the success that they had in that cup final in 09. Also, the fact that it was Jordan Stahl who was the big star of that and ended up becoming a big force in the in the finals in the 2000, final in 2009, uh, that was also a precursor. The fact, not just that the Penguins won, but that Jordan Stahl played a major role in it. Yeah, some foreshadowing there for sure. It's interesting, too, when you think about the months in between that and then obviously a major moment in Penguins history on February 8th when Dan Bilesma became the coach that there probably was so many positive vibes coming out of Detroit that night, beating them at Joe Lewis, winning that game. Then you go through the next couple of months and you just see a team. And I'm curious for your guys' perspective because, I mean, obviously the three of you kind of lived it personally from one side or the other at that moment. But you see a team that maybe is – Am I right in saying the, the pressure of the expectation of being what everyone expected them to be kind of weighs on you when you go that deep into the playoffs the year before and you're playing games in December, in late November, in early January, that it's just hard to find that same level of, in, of intensity and, and meet everyone's expectations in the process? Yeah, and there were injuries too, you know. Right. You know the past, unfortunately, they'd lost Sergei Gonchar. And, um, you know, they had a little different makeup too, you know. Uh, Hal Gill had become pretty entrenched uh, on the team at that point. Uh, and he, he wasn't being used uh, maybe to the way he wanted to be used by Michael Terrian. And you had Matt Cook uh, in the lineup. And, and Cook had been signed prior to the 08-09 season, and he was a great addition to the Penguins. And, but he wasn't being used by Michael Terrian the way he wanted to be used. And so you had these veteran players who weren't taking his crap uh, the way maybe the young players who'd grown up with him had taken it. I can distinctly remember Jordan Stahl sitting next to him in the locker room, and Tarion came in the doorway of the locker room, and Stahl whispered over to me and says, I'm afraid of that guy. And, I mean, this is big horse of a hockey player. I'm mean, afraid of his coach. And I think it really resonated with me that, you know, and then you started to hear rumblings that, you know, here we are in February, the Penguins are, uh, you know, in 10th place. They're not playing that well. They're in a slump. And ah, they would never fire Michael Terry. And I mean, he took him to this final last year. He's he's entrenched now. And and then all of a sudden, uh, you know, we're on Long Island. It's February 13th or 14th. It's Valentine's Day weekend. We're down in the hotel in the Garden City Hotel. And all of a sudden, we're standing there by the desk. And here comes Michael Terry walking through the lobby with his luggage, leaving. And see, the team was up in their rooms and, you know, getting ready to play a game the next day. And Terry's walking out. And we said, where are you going? He said, going home. He walked by and out the door he went, and then we found out that he'd been let go, and that Dan Bilesman would be the coach uh, in, in on an interim basis. And he came up, and his first game was against the Islanders, and, uh, you know, uh, the rest is history. I mean, the Penguins went on that incredible run, uh, and you started to see the, the change in the way the Penguins played. You could see it building. He gave them – he freed their minds. He got them playing on their toes. Uh, he got those veteran players more involved in the mix. He put Scuderi and Gill together. Those two became a really good defensive pairing. He got Sergey Gonchar back not long after that, which was a huge lift. Michael Terry will tell you today that if he had a Gonchar, maybe he wouldn't have been in that situation. But, uh, you know, it, it is what it is. And, uh, you know, Bilesma's presence changed the mindset of the team. And they just then they really started to believe. And they got on an incredible role. And uh, Matt Cook became a force because they put Cook, Stahl, and Kennedy together. And that became the best third line in hockey. So there were just a lot of great things that really started to 
to build uh, once they made that change. And there's one more thing, too, got worse, guys, and that's the acquisition of Chris Kunitz not long after uh, Dan Bilesman was, was made the coach. Because Kunitz, he bought right into Bilesman's whole thing. Dan Bilesman brought, like, new terminology to the team. You know, pass off the pads, P-O-P, uh, I-Z-O, his own offense. And he would draw these things onto the board. And it really got the guys thinking. They started the less east-west stuff more straight ahead, north-south hockey. It really changed the way the Penguins played. And that was a huge change, too, because the Penguins had been too fancy, and now all of a sudden, Dan Bosman has them going from their own end out. Remember, he said, we got to get to the offensive zone. we got to get to the offensive zone. So much that I, I wanted to scream, but, you know, and, and the assistant <laughs> saying it, too, you know. Todd Reardon was saying it. Mike Yo was saying it. we got to get to the offensive zone. But, man, I mean, it, you know, and once they got there, they – they really controlled play in the offensive zone, too, you might remember. They were really good at that. Uh, the, the term F3 became really prominent, the, the high forward. That forward was constantly making plays when other teams were trying to get out of their end. That forward would end up being involved in some offense uh, and maybe lead to a goal. So there was a lot of cool things that happened when Dan Bilesman took over. Face-off plays because they put Tom Fitzgerald behind the bench to work with him. And there were, there were many things, really, that added up getting on that role and going into the playoffs with the confidence that they had. You talk about the, getting to the offensive zone. That's when they started getting those defense when they get those stretch passes, too. If you right. got a guy, if you see the team changing, get your forward up to the opposing blue line, hit him with that stretch pass, get it in, and out of the possession from there, too. Exactly. A, a different approach than what we would later see from Mike Sullivan, who, who you know, wanted the, the, the play to go north, but he, would, he was using those space plays, they call it, where you flip, guys were flipping pucks out of their own end, and they were using their speed to chase down pucks. A different, uh, completely different strategy, but the same concept in terms of getting to the other end of the rink as fast as you can get there. Yeah, and I feel like, meanwhile, everything was status quo in Detroit in terms of them just rolling along for <laughs> another season. I mean, they added Marion Hosa. They got even better, and they still had, you know, Datsuk, Zetterberg, uh, Lidstrom, you know, guys from the 97-98 teams, like you know, actually, Kirk Malpey was my favorite player growing up. I actually wrote a letter to him when I was in, I wanted to say second grade, um, <laughs> but I actually have it at my desk at work. My parents kept it, and I've been meaning to show it to him because he's a scout that you guys, I'm sure, have seen around uh, in the press box at PBG Paints Arena. But, I mean, the Red Wings, I, I think they had another, they had 51 wins, um, I believe, uh, for a second straight year. Um, they had uh, the best power play in the NHL. They had... Um, the best offense in the NHL. I mean, it, it truly was just, you know, basically continuing what they did the year before. So it's just uh, amazing to see the parallel between that, that, you know, they were just kind of status quo, but the Penguins had to go through a lot of changes to get back to the same point. Stag, you could probably speak to this too, but I feel like when Dan came in, it was almost like the players could exhale a little bit and just play. And, you know, I, I feel I wasn't there that long. That was my first year, 08, 09. So I, kind of walk in as they started kind of going downhill in this little slump, but you could see that they were tense. They were tightening their, their grips. They were worried about so many different things on the ice. It almost paralyzed them at times. And then when Dan came in, it, not, not just, I mean, we talked about the X's and O's, but I think just mentally, then being able to go out there and play, they played so much more loose. I mean, you talk about playing on your toes, but I just think mentally they were playing so much more loose and just out there and, and, I, mean, I know we always say it, but they were having fun. Like, they started winning. They were feeling good about themselves. They were having fun on the ice. You could tell in the locker room it was much more jovial. They were much more relaxed in that sense, too. And I think the, the psychological lift went just as big as the, the on-ice tactics. I agree. That's why I use the term it freed their minds, because I think that's really yeah. 
And I think, uh, you know, Dan Bilesman's personality is so different. You know, they call him disco and all that. He, <laughs> he's loose. He's a loose guy. So, you know, that, that, and that was definitely so the Penguins were, you know, I think a lot of times we think coaches make all the difference. I mean, Mike Sullivan made a huge difference with the Penguins uh, in, in, in a different way. He brought more discipline and more structure to the team at the time that they needed it, a different, a different kind of uh, effect. Whereas in this case, Tarion was a ta- you know, kind of a technocrat, you know, and, a, and, a, and a, a bit of a dictator, you know, and he kind of he was a surly guy. And Dan Biles was personality closed. But the real key is that most of the leadership on great teams comes from inside the room, not necessarily the coaches. And the coaches have to find a way to tap into that leadership and get their core players to, to lead inside the room. What really happened is when Tarion was removed, it opened a void of leadership that guys like Hal Gill, Matt Cook, you know, um, ultimately uh, Billy Garen, you know, people who could, who could, you know, kind of take over the room and the team became more uh, of a team and, and less worried about pleasing or playing in spite of a coach that they weren't really thrilled with at that point. God, I would have loved to cover Billy Garen as a player. I can't imagine what he was like. <laughs> he really loosened Sid up. I mean, he came in and he was immediately ribbing Sid and making fun of him and things that no one else would do. Like Colby Armstrong had that kind of relationship with Sid, but he'd been traded the year before. So, you know, Sid was tight. He was a lot of pressure on him. And I think Billy Garen took a lot of that pressure off of him. And, uh, you know, he wanted to win again and uh, he could still play too. So there's no question that that was a big addition for the Penguins was getting him in there to help lead the Penguins uh, to that next level. The next level began against the Flyers. And I remember it, it came down to the, the Penguins jump from 10th to 4th. And what did Philly lost it on like a, a last game of the year against somebody, uh, like a, a team that was out of the playoff. And Buffalo. And <laughs> <laughs> like all Philly had to do was get a point. And they would have hosted, and they, like, missed that, and they lost the game. And so Pittsburgh got the fourth seed and was able to host. Right. And you talk about things where you just know that you're going to lose a series. I know how that series went, and I know it looked like for a second that we were going to go to a game seven. But you knew when that swing happened that it probably wasn't going to happen for the Flyers. But also, I think it's worth saying, like, we talk about so many – little things throughout the course of a season to make a difference. One of the biggest things that everyone talks about, and you go back to 2016, the Penguins fit this bill as well as they did in 2009, who's playing the best going into the postseason? And after Bilesmith took over, the Penguins were, what, 18-3-4. and four. They were the best team in the NHL. And they added all those pieces that you guys talked about. So, yeah, they were a four seed by number. But I think when you looked at how teams were playing and the way they were tracking, they were closer to a one in the East, and they obviously proved that with the route they went getting back to the final. A lot of, yeah, a lot of it comes down to momentum, and, and you're right. It's not who's the best team, who's playing the best at the right time, and, you know, I guess the 17 team kind of <laughs> defied the odds in that sense, but if you look through history, I mean, even even the Red Wing team in 08, like a lot of those, the Kings, you know, they were playing the best hockey down the stretch in 12, and everyone's like, oh, there's no way they could win. They don't have the, the pieces still, but they were playing the best down the stretch, and they ended up carrying that over into the playoffs, and Certainly, I think momentum has a lot to say for it, but then, you know, you can always get stuck in your tracks, i.e. Tampa Bay last year when they went 50-odd games, and then you're up 3 nothing in game one and up losing the game and getting slow. So, right, but, uh, but I, guess, I guess my point is I feel like they were playing important games because of the situation they dug themselves. Yeah, they were out of the playoffs, you know, when they made the coaching change, so they had to get their butts in gear, if you will, right. and, uh, you know, so you're no doubt that the – you know, that the pressure was on to win from the organization. I mean, when you make a coaching change, that that, that sends shockwaves through your, 
especially when you fire a guy who just took you to the Stanley Cup final the year before. Well, I remember a couple of years ago, I think it was in 2017, talking to Matt Niskanen when he was on the Capitals, and this is when they were motoring along, and they played the Penguins, I want to say it was early March, something along those lines leading into the playoffs. And they, I mean, they were far away winning the Metro Division. They were far away probably going to get the President's Trophy. And he said to me at the time, in the uh, critically acclaimed view from the other side on the Penguins radio network, <laughs> that he was, he, <laughs> he was most concerned about them getting to a level of desperation that the Penguins had. He knew they had the skill to match him, but the desperation wasn't there because they'd been sitting at the top for so long. And I feel like that Penguins team in 09, even though they had the talent, they also had the desperation because they didn't have any uh, solid footing beneath them really until what the last few weeks of the season after that amazing march yeah for, for all intents and purposes they're the Penguins started the playoffs on february 15th right and they hired michael Tarrant and brought in dan bosma and you're right to that effect i don't think they actually clinched until april 1st or 2nd and then after clinching they made the big leap in like the last because that's how tight the race was and how right. close the points were so yeah they had not only all the momentum but you're right they had been playing that high intensity hockey for two months before they met up with uh, with the Flyers. Guys, I'm oh, sorry. Can we take a quick uh, side note and talk about mine and Sam's favorite goal that he scored, um, which was against the Flyers in 2008, the breakaway slap shot goal? Getting Malkin. <laughs> yes. Getting <laughs> Gotta give it some love. <laughs> Josh, do you remember that goal? Yeah, because I, I think, you know, the, the funny part is if you remember back to that play, I'm not positive, but I'm pretty sure that Mike Richards lit up Malkin before that. Yeah, yeah. And that's why he was in the zone. Yeah. So <laughs> the the other side of the coin is everyone on the other side of the state's like, "Whoa, you chase!" <laughs> and then you follow the play back down, and all of a sudden the Flyers turn the puck over, and then you're like, "Wait a second. And then Gino's on a breakaway, and then just wreaks havoc unleashing that slap shot that was probably 250 miles an hour. That's Martin. <laughs> <laughs> you know. That was Boucher, right? I think it was Marty Biron. Biron, yeah, yeah. Biron. Yeah. Good for him that it went in because if he would have got hit with that thing, <laughs> yes, he might he might have broke his arm or punched it along. I mean, Gino just lit into that puck. And he's from five feet away. He literally wound up and took a slap shot. Also, shout out to Sergey Gonchar who got who got the puck and saw Malkin was wide open at the red line and just shot a perfect pass that let him in on that breakaway too. Yeah, that was a moment. Yeah, sorry to go off topic, but I definitely wanted to uh, mention it. That really fired up Staggy because he ran away while we were talking. (laughs) He clearly ran away. In the meantime, I'm sure he'll jump back in. But guys, like when you look at that playoff run, we talk about the Philly series, and obviously everyone thinks about that series. They think about the shush with Max Talbot in game six and everything that came with that. But that was a pretty big moment, right? That game six with Max Talbot giving the shush and everything. Not just so much that moment in itself, but you're down 3 nothing in Philly, one of the more hostile places you're going to play in the entire postseason. And you come back and win that game and win the series. I almost feel like if there was any more convincing the Penguins needed that they had the resilience to get back to the final, that was probably the last little dose of it right there. Absolutely. And, you know, it's funny because we talk about the shirts and then obviously it was a huge moment because there's two different sides to every coin, right? So everyone gave Carcillo a lot of grief, if you will, for doing that fight when you're up 3 nothing. Uh, and a lot of people talk about momentum. Do fights really change momentum? Do they change? Some people think they do. Some people think they don't. But, um, but it did rev up the crowd. I mean, the crowd was going crazy, and they were trying to get in the Penguins' heads, get in the Penguins' minds. 
and uh, Max Habito the shush, but then it was Ruslan Fedotenko who scored on the ensuing uh, play. So the puck drops, ensuing play, Ruslan Fedotenko scores to get the Penguins on the board. And from there, I think that's really, I, as much as the shush will go down in history, and we'll always, obviously, we'll always remember the shush. We'll remember Carcillo doing the arm raise, trying to get the crowd, and Tal was doing the shush. Yeah, that really stands out as a huge memory. No one will forget that. But really, the turning point came after that. I think it was, I think it was only like 11 seconds after the puck drop or something like that. It was quick. It was, all right, they're both in the box. They're both in the penalty box. Crowd's going crazy. Puck drops, goes, Fetanko scores. And all of a sudden, the Philly crowd just like, wait, what just happened? You know, we, we were on our feet. We're up 3 nothing. Carcillo just beat up Talbot. No offense, Max. Uh, Carcillo just beat up Talbot. Uh, we're riding high here. Like, they they got to be thinking at that point they're going to a game seven. And then Fedotenko scores and it's just quiet at the building. I've, I've never seen a building go from here to here, like from, from such a high to such a low. And, and, I, and I, you know, we, we talk about the shirts, but I think Fedotenko's goal really that made it 3-1 is what kind of got the ball rolling for the Penguins. Good and point. then they, they fed off that goal, yeah. But, I mean, as history will we'll go down, it was all the shirts, right? And Max Tabbitt will tell you he saved the series with the shirts. So. you got to think the fans at Wells Fargo Center weren't going to listen to Max and quiet down. <laughs> you know, so if, you're, if he doesn't score that goal, if Ruslan Sladyshenko doesn't score that goal, they're going to be just as loud, just as fired up. I mean, that's a hostile environment. And then they would have kept going if you don't get that goal immediately after to answer the bell. Yeah. I have to be honest, I think in a lot of, I'd be curious for the opinion of you guys in that situation, because when that happened, I didn't even notice the shush. I don't know how many people you actually know. did when it happened I live. Yeah, right. Like, I don't know how many people were totally zoned into that happening. I think it became almost like a level of mystique after the fact because of what happened after the fight. But in that moment, exactly. I didn't even notice the shush happening. <laughs> You're right. Yeah, you, you don't know that it's a big deal at the at the time, you know, until the Penguins ended up coming. Yeah, I, I heard people debating whether or not that fight, you know, uh, I heard guys on the radio arguing, yeah, that fight didn't mean a thing, you know, they won because, they, you know, whatever, you know what I mean? It's like, well, not really. I mean, you heard what Eddie Olchick said on the broadcast. Yeah. He said, Carcillo, what's he doing? What's he thinking there? He, he can't understand what he was doing, yeah. So from a hockey player's perspective, I mean, that's a great thing example of how a former player as a color analyst can kind of take you inside what players are thinking because there's no question psychologically that that had uh, an effect you know don't don't think don't you think for a second that the flyers players some of them anyway on the bench are going what are you doing that's what they're thinking i think that's overblown to be honest with you i think it's more for the fans like the fight gets the fans into it as far as the players, they're just going out there and playing. I heard Max say it too. He's like, I played with Dan Carcillo and Wolfsbury. I knew he wouldn't say no. Like he, <laughs> he would say no. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and Max has told us many times because Max blew his coverage on the game's opening goal. Oh right, yeah. So the entire time he's thinking, what can I do? What can I do to kind of get us back into this? Get us back into this. Someone's free nothing. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go out there and try and fight somebody. And Carcillo obviously is a guy who won't say no. So I go after him. Yeah, just an example of just the mind games that go on, you know, just constantly in playoffs. I was then, watching the game on TV with a bunch of people. I was in an establishment somewhere. I don't remember where, but I wasn't I wasn't doing the game, uh, but I was watching. And I'll never forget Mark Eaton scoring, going to the net. And somehow he tipped one in. It, and, uh, you know, it, when, when you see uh, guys like that score goals in games in the playoffs, you know 
uh, the hockey gods are smiling on you because, you know, he just didn't score goals very often. And <laughs> it was great to see him get up that big goal. I think it was, a to me, it symbolized a little bit what that the Penguins were, were going to win. Yeah, and, and like I said, I, when Fedotenko scored, the building went from here to here. I don't think I've ever heard a building more signed than when Sergei Gonchar scored two minutes into the third period. Just the collective hearts of Philadelphia and get Josh gets off just shrunk. <laughs> Which has been shed for my uh, my persona, by the way, just for all the listeners and watchers out there. I, I do want to say I'm pretty sure Mark Eaton, if I'm not mistaken, from Wilmington, Delaware, uh, former Philadelphia Little Flyer, nonetheless, uh, proud alumni base there. So um, not as quite as good as the Little Caesars alumni, but uh, you know we have Mark Eaton. So yeah. Also, I would like to disclaim that the Red Wings, you know, fandom is gone for me as well. Josh and I are, are firmly uh, entrenched here in Pittsburgh. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to have you. We're glad to have you. <laughs> that series against the Flyers obviously was awesome, guys. But I think when you think about classics, the next round, the seven-game series, Pens and the Caps, the Sid Ovi, I mean, that was uh, edge of your seat from start to finish, except for maybe game seven. That series was so hyped up with, with all the elements. You got the two rivalries, right? Pittsburgh, Washington. Right. Two of the better teams, probably the two best teams in the league. And obviously, it's, it's happened since then a couple times. That was the first time. And then Don't the Citadel rivalry, obviously, was a big deal. So I remember going into that, just, just the, the media circus that it was. And, and actually, um, Bruce Boudreaux was the head coach of the uh, Capitals at the time. And when he came, Whatever we went down there for game one, and he even said, Oh, the circus came into town. I see it was just the media swarm because everyone wanted to see this series, and it's and it's it really did live up to the hype, too, as far as everything we expected. You had the two stars go, all the stars going, both those teams were loaded with talent, they were all scoring. The, it was intense back and forth, like game seven, a couple overtimes. I mean, it, I can't think of a better series I've covered or even just watched as a fan in that series. Again, I don't know where that ranks with your memories, but for me, I think that series was the top. Um, I, I always called upon the, the fact that the Penguins had owned the Capitals for all those years in the playoffs. And the one year that they were able to beat the Penguins was when Mario was really hurting and he ended up having to take a couple of years off back in 94. So the, the Capitals just couldn't beat the Penguins. And, you know, I, I just felt like the Penguins were going to win always when the Penguins played the Capitals in the playoffs. But this was a this was a struggle, a titan struggle between two great hockey teams. And we'd seen that before between Pittsburgh and Washington, two teams that were comparable in, in quality. And uh, just something about when the Penguins played the Caps, uh, they found ways to win. And what I think what made that series so kind of different to me was that the Penguins still won the series despite not winning game six at home. And my thought and experience had been leading up to that series that if you win a game six uh, to force a game seven, you often win game seven because that team that loses game six is devastated by not having clinched and they don't want to play a game seven. It's the dreaded game seven thing, whereas yeah. the team that forces the game seven is really excited to play game seven. So uh, the Penguins had to go in there and play a game seven after not winning uh, the series at home in game six. That was scary. And then Ovechkin gets that great chance right off the hop, and Flurry makes a save. It's, it's really weird, isn't it, in hockey? And I think you could probably say this in any sport. Sometimes the turning point of a game can literally be in the first minute. And I actually think that was the case. I think if Ovechkin scores there, the Capitals might win game seven because that's how fragile it is in game seven. 
momentum and first goals and things of that nature. So I, I, that save will always go down to me as one of the great saves in Penguins history because it really it was kind of like the save that Frankie Peter Angelo made back in '91. You know, you you got to you got to stop that that chance there, and it gave the Penguins a chance to then go on and uh, and win that game decisively. And speaking of that save, Michelle, uh, you talked to Mark Andre Fleur about that save, and he gave you a little cool insight information on it. Yeah, I'm trying to remember the exact story. That's literally what I was just doing right now. But <laughs> let me tell you a story for you. Yes, please. <laughs> this, this is via Michelle Crepiello. But uh, she was talking to Mark Andre about the, the save, and he said that before the game, when he was warming up, he walked out on the bench and looked up and was watching the cast were doing their pregame, you know, warm up or whatever. They were, um, the Jumbotron was just running the, the highlights that they were going to run through the game. You know, the, every arena does a quick, dry run through before games start. And so Mark Andre Fleury is standing on the bench, just looking up, and he's watching all these highlight reels of the cast and highlight reels of the cast. And he's watching Obi. He says, man, every time he comes in on a breakaway, he deeks and tries to go glove side. So he's like, I'll keep that in mind. So Mark Andre Fleury is basically pre-scouting this game from the jumbotron on the bench before the game started. Then when the game started, lo and behold, here comes Ovechkin on a breakaway. So Fleury's thinking, all right, he's going to go glove. He's going to go glove. Sure enough, he tries glove, and Fleury was there and ready for it. So really, that save started mentally in the uh, pregame. Uh, wow, that's a great story. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah. yeah. It was just, yeah, he's like, I guess we have got to give a sick tap to uh, the Caps uh, in-game. <laughs> it's just crazy, though. Like, that, Yeah, but it's just when you think back about, you know, so many things have to fall into place and just, you know, for, for Flower to just be on the bench in that moment and then just happening to play those highlights at that time and for it to all just come together and accumulate in that save. It's just like when you think back at all the little things that, you know, happen – uh, in, you know, a, a Stanley Cup championship winning run. It's it's really remarkable. By the way, we didn't mention this player, but he is another guy that uh, was acquired by the Penguins, uh, and that's Craig Adams. They picked him up on waivers, uh, and he ended up scoring a goal in that game. And he had a knack of coming up with goals in the playoffs. When he wouldn't score a whole regular season, he'd score one goal, and then he'd score a couple of goals in the playoffs. That, that kind of player. And he was the kind of guy who would block shots and do all the things you got to do to win. So he was another key guy that the Penguins acquired that kind of flew under the radar. That game seven was a little bit of uh, overall. I'm just, I'm just curious for your guys' memory of that because we talked back to this, the save that Flurry made in the early going on Ovechkin. I remember being in my basement that night, being really excited to like settle in and watch one of the classic game sevens in NHL history, and it was just not that. <laughs> no, I know because a lot of times, you know, the, the big events, you know, like how many Super Bowls have not. You know, right. in games, you know, it's just sometimes once the momentum goes a certain way. But I, I think one of the things also that happened in game seven, if you recall, Sergey Gonchar returned. And uh, he had he had been out uh, because he was need by Alexander Ovechkin early in the series. And it was, you know, a lot of people felt Ovi could certainly have avoided it. And uh, we were concerned that, that Gonchar wasn't going to be able to come back. Amazingly, the next day, Gonch said he was skating on it and he felt like he could go. And, and uh, so he, he really believed that with a few days of rest and some more rehab that he'd be able to come back in the series. And he fires a puck on one leg uh, and scores a goal. Uh, and I remember Bob Airy saying when he came back in that series, Bob Airy said, look at him, he's, got, he's shooting on one leg, he's shooting on his other leg, you know. And uh, he scored. And it was like a, a very inspirational thing. 
what a key player he was for the Penguins. I mean, like, I don't know if we give him enough credit because he, and he's still, of course, with the organization. What a great guy and a great influence on the players. But he was like another leader in the room, another veteran leader in the room, quiet leader who made a huge impact on that team. And if it wasn't a game seven, I don't think he plays. I agree. I think the stakes were just too high. And, but yeah, he missed well, games five, you know, could barely, uh, could barely walk around. And then game seven, he's lacing up the skate. I think they actually, my memory might be wrong. I think they dressed seven defensemen that game just, just in case he couldn't really do much. And I think the, the thinking was, all right, maybe he'll go out there and do some power play time or something. But like, if this, if this goes off the rails, we might have to yank him and, you know, they don't want to be caught with playing with 5D. So I think they dressed 7D that series. Uh, Brian Boucher, um, or Philippe Boucher uh, was the, the guy going in. Or, or either him or Alex Kologoski, I can't remember the time. But I remember that's how, like, tepid they were about him playing. I don't, you know, I don't know that they if it wasn't game seven, there's no way he plays. But I think they had a very strong contingency plan, like, going in thinking, like, all right, this, this might not go well. <laughs> and if it doesn't go well, we need to be prepared. So it went really well. He scored a goal, right? Yeah, that he was playing on adrenaline and uh, and inspiration. And you're right, it did. Did get the uh, the whole team going, and, and a lot of guys scored too. You know, you said Adams, Crosby scored, Stahl scored, Latang scored, Garen scored. I feel like everybody pretty much scored in that game. Obviously, it was a route. Karlamov <laughs> fell apart before he did. Uh, I, I I had a vision of him being pulled in that series at some point, and it didn't happen until Game Seven. But it happened. Yeah, because <laughs> uh, the Penguins yeah. have had a knack of breaking goalies. You know, in the years that they've won cups, they break goalies. They, they break broke Rene. Yeah, you know, yeah, back <laughs> Rene. Right, right. I, I could give you examples. Yeah. Donnie Beaupre, uh, Jim Carrey. I, you know, for the Capitals fans out there who would dare to watch this, uh, they know too well that the Penguins have ruined those players, a lot of goalies in Washington. Well, it's funny. Carey, because he he was like the best in the winners, like the best goalie in the regular season. And as soon as he faced the Penguins in the playoffs, he's given up five, six, seven. They literally, like, they literally shattered Jim Carrey's career. They they destroyed his career. He was never the same after that. Yeah, he, he was like the best. Yeah, and I remember. I mean, we're going way back now, but it's just funny. <laughs> Capitals and the Penguins, of course. You can't, you know, you, you have to think of all these things when you think of their when those two teams play each other, and it could happen again. God, please save us from, uh, from lockdown or this, uh, get us back to playing. But, um, you know, uh, I remember Craig Patrick saying, I'm glad they didn't play Ole Colsey. He goes, he almost plays well against us. And I, I remember it because they, <laughs> they did, you know, Jim Schoenfeld kept carry in instead of switching goalies. Uh, he waited too long. And the Penguins came from behind in that series. They were down three games to one. They tortured. I mean, they were down in that series. So they had to win game seven. Let, let's face it. I mean, the Penguins have have had an unbelievable run against the Capitals. It's just unfortunate that they didn't continue that run a couple of years ago, and the Capitals went on to win the Cup, didn't he, Crosby's cry. He hated losing to the Capitals. The Penguins hated losing to that team, and they loved beating that team, and they loved winning that game seven. It was great. It was just great stuff. Now on to Jim Rutherford's team, his former team, should say. Yeah. Carolina. Carolina. Uh, obviously, the Penguins make quick work for the Hurricanes, but that, I think that's, that was Evgeny Malkin's coming off party. That's where he really shined. And not just the Geno play, the Spinorama goal where he won the offensive zone faceoff, drew it forward, cut around, and just abused Cam Ward. <laughs> but that whole series, you know, the Penguins, and, and I remember watching it was uh, Boston, Carolina. Those two teams were playing. I just remember, like, man, I hope it's not Boston. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it's not Boston. 
And then uh and they won in, in game seven there. Carolina won the game Walker, seven there. Right? Yeah, and yeah. yeah. So uh they pulled that one out. So it was like all right, and then and I understand after the fact I guess Cam Ward was hurt and a couple of their guys were banged up, but I mean that is what happens with the Penguins just steamroll through them, you know, and then and on the other end, Detroit, uh they played the Chicago because I remember both series went so quick that it was like, oh man, we got to get the final going way ahead of schedule. And you almost feel like we were saying how the Penguins in 08 lost, learn how to win. It's almost like the Blackhawks lost to the Red Wings in 09, learn how to win to kind of come back a couple of years later. And yeah, there. good point. You know, they say that every team that wins the Cup has to have at least one short series, one easy series on the way there. Because it's such a grind. It's a war of attrition, right? And that, that was the easy series for the Penguins. That was the one they needed. They, they needed to have one where they dispatched that team quickly to get on to the final. And uh, well, Gino was the man. Uh, I'll never forget, I was in the stands the day he scored that, that spinorama goal on Cam Ward. And uh, the reaction was like, it's not just the excitement of the goal, it was more like awe, like, oh my, did you see that? Like that <laughs> reaction, you know, from the, like all the people around me. It was like, everybody looked at each other, like, did you, did you see what I saw? You know, it was like that <laughs> great moment in the stands, you know. Uh, there's nothing like being in the in the stands for playoff hockey, the whiteout or whatever color they're wearing, and uh, the atmosphere. I mean, it, it, you hang on every shot, every save. You know, it's just it's, it's, there's so much tension in the building, and um, you know that was a, almost like a party that atmosphere in that Carolina series because you knew the Penguins were going to like you said earlier, Michelle. You can kind of tell when you're going to win and when you're not. I mean, there was no that was no contest. I mean, you knew the Penguins were going to were going to take care of business there, and uh, so it was really a fun feeling to know that you know. Hey, we don't have to go through a lot of this tension that right now. We can just enjoy this and then get ready for a you know Stanley Cup final. Yeah, what was uh, Gino's demeanor like off the ice too when you guys were dealing with him for like interviews or just you know being around him? If you can remember back, well, I know he was always funny. He was always funny. Actually, after the uh, game, one of the games, maybe Game Four in Carolina, he came to the podium and he came with Max Talbot and. Uh, they were interviewing him about his play. And they go, like, oh, yeah, I probably could have had a couple more points. But, you know, Max, he has bad hands. He can't score. And there's Riven Max, and he's sitting, like, right next to him. And uh, you can see he was – yeah, he was just absolutely loose. He was absolutely just living his best life, having a great time. And, you know, obviously he's putting up a ton of points, and, and the team's winning. So that's – everything's better when you're winning. Everything's better when you're producing. And I think he was obviously at the height there. Well, and his parents were there, right? That was uh, Vladimir and Natalia's coming out party. Yes, it was. You're right. <laughs> it's funny. He was there. Yeah, we we were getting shots of them in the stands, and um, he would come around and hang out with the fans. Every now and then, they'd get a shot of him like celebrating with the fans. Malkin sad. It was great. Oh yeah, they're heroes. That's good stuff. Yeah. Speaking of that series, you said Saggy talked about Craig Adams. The other thing that a funny story. The other thing that stands out in my mind is that Craig Adams scored a goal when he never touched the puck on a play where not a single Penguin touched the puck. This is Car- I think it was either game three or four in Carolina, and the goaltender was pulled. And they had a faceoff in the Penguin zone, and whichever Carolina player won the draw clean, won it back between his two defense, and the puck skirted all the way into the empty net. Craig Adams- I- I've forgotten about that. That's a- yeah, now that you mention it, that's great stuff. And even though Craig Adams never touched the puck, I mean, that was probably the best faceoff loss of his career. Never touched the puck, he still, <laughs> because he took the faceoff. He got credit for the goal. So. And, you know, when you see teams, that, those are the kind of things that go your way. In, in Carolina, on the flip side, you had to be thinking, like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> right. And, and it's like, 
you know, we talk about the hockey gods all the time and those little signals you get during the course of a playoff run that, that the gods are on your side. You know, there's another example of that for sure. So what did, what did you think of the uh, – I know Mario and those guys touched the Wales trophy, and obviously in 08, the Penguins did not touch the trophy. ended up losing. So this time around, were you surprised when they went out and uh, touched the trophy stack? Not at all. <clears throat> I mean, you know, knowing that they had touched it to win, they were, why would they switch that up? Uh, they just had this attitude that we're going to enjoy this, we're going to do it, we're not going to do what everybody else does. And then um, you know, they had touched it uh, – they touched it because they want. They just wanted to be different, you know. And I thought it was cool. That was a great. I, I, you know, I, I'm waiting for the first team to come along and say we're not growing beards. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that'd be cool. We're just gonna grow out our hair or something. I'm waiting for the first team to do that. So we're not. We're not doing the beard thing. We're uh, gonna shave our heads. We're gonna well, be, won't be the San Jose Sharks. That's for sure. <laughs> <la> for real though. <laughs> For a couple of reasons. <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, those were the days when Sid could hardly grow a beard, if you remember. Um, and you know. That's how young he was. And, uh, that's the one thing about that team that, you know, is another thing that's really special about that team. Is I mean, they did have the veteran players who helped them in a big way, but the core guys were still young. And you immediately felt like big things were going to really happen for a long time. Uh, they really captured the hearts of the young people of Pittsburgh. It was, uh, it was that, that's one of the things I loved about that team was, as much as anything, is that uh, the young folks in Pittsburgh could relate to them. And uh, it, it, that really helped the explosion of hockey interest in Pittsburgh, I think. The fact that not only were they a great team, but they were a young team. And, they, you know, they were like, they were like uh, darlings, you know, uh, for, of, the, of the young people. And you know where we really saw that was at the parade afterwards. You, you really saw the impact that they made on kids in the city, all kids who have grown up now. I mean, it's amazing. All those years ago, 11 years ago or whatever it is, uh, those kids that were 10 are now, you know, 20, you know. And uh, so that, that was that was really cool that they were able to win at such a young age. You know? Sid, how old was he? 21. 22 or 21? 21. 21. Yeah. I can't even picture Sid as being 21. Like, this is fun to hear, but I think especially, too, for, you know, fans that – might not know, but yeah, I mean, now they're the elder statesmen of the team. They're they're the veteran leaders. They're they're not the young guys anymore. I mean, Gino will say it over and over that he I'm old. Like, <laughs> so it's just like it's cool to hear about this dynamic that they had of being this young group who had you know guys like Billy Guerin and, and Sergey Gonchar that they could lean on, uh, you know, for for help in that regard. And um, you know, it's it's just it's crazy to think you know Sid was 21, Gino was 22. Um, they really were just just getting started. It's, it's amazing to think about. No, they're young. They're, when you look back on that team, man, they had some personality. I mean, they had guys like Max Talbot and I know Armstrong. Colby wasn't there when they won the cup. He was there before. And Ryan Whitney wasn't there when they won the cup. He was there before. And even they had like Paul Bissonnette on the team. Mark Flurry is a character. I mean, Ryan Whitney. Yeah, when you like go top down, like all these incredible guys that had these boisterous, exuberant personalities. Even, like, Gary Roberts was his own kind of guy. Oh, Gary Roberts. I wanted to mention Gary Roberts. He wasn't part of that team. But yeah, they, yeah, they weren't all part of the 09 team, but just all those guys as they were kind of coming up and growing together. And I feel like a lot of, like you said, I think a lot of young people in the area and the region grew with that team, too. Like, that, that team matured and grew as human beings in front of our eyes, and a lot of the Pittsburgh community grew themselves alongside them. And, and I think that, that speaks a lot, too, what Staggy was just saying, too, about 
team being young and the, the beauty of them being young and doing it together. What to do is you got to beat the Red Wings again. <laughs> Set, that, yeah, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, so that was what the next step would be back in the Stanley Cup final against the Detroit Red Wings. And uh, as far as I understand it, we're going to dive into that Stanley Cup final in our next episode. Am I correct on that? Yes. Yeah. We can talk about like going into it too. Um, just the mindset. Like, Sag, you, did you. Okay, so you're getting Detroit again. Played them in 08. When they come up on the ring, are you like, man, we want them again this time around? Or are you kind of like, man, maybe Chicago can win and we can uh, <laughs> have a little bit of an easier series? Or did you almost want that, that rematch? Um, I don't know. I, I, I remember thinking that uh, the Red Wings were a difficult team. Maybe it didn't dawn on me uh, going in, you know, but certainly know in retrospect now uh, that uh, – like I said earlier, it's a war of attrition in the playoffs, and you need breaks. you got to stay healthy. Uh, the Red Wings weren't a healthy group when the Penguins played them that year, and that was a break for the Penguins, that they didn't have to face Pavel Datsuk at the top of his powers. So you went into that series knowing that they didn't have all their guns uh, available to them, and I think that was something that gave you a little bit of hope. But I still felt, I think, going into that series that, there were some demons that needed to be exercised. Even with that win you mentioned earlier in the year, that seven to six win in Detroit, and even with the win that they had gotten in the previous year's run when they did win that game five in triple overtime, there was still that feeling that the Joe Lewis arena was a house of horrors for the Penguins and that they were somehow with Detroit having the home ice advantage, that it was going to be difficult for them to, to pull it off. It goes back to what you guys were talking about uh, a little while ago, just in terms of, you know, when we were talking about going into the Flyer series, that the Penguins were, you know, playing desperate hockey that whole time. And I think, you know, seeing just, you know, the coaching change and how they were just rolling, uh, you know, going in and like rolling through the playoffs, obviously, to get to the final again, I think there's definitely some apprehension on the part of Red Wings fans, especially too, and knowing that they, had our number and they wanted revenge and they wanted vengeance and they wanted to, you know, make up for last year's loss. So I, I think, you know, we were definitely uh, all apprehensive in Detroit, especially too, like you said, Saggy, being without Pavel Datsuk. I mean, I can't imagine starting a final without one of your two best players. Like that's, it doesn't uh, inspire a ton of confidence. I mean, that's just a huge blow. So um, I think, you know, definitely we weren't feeling as good in 09 as we were in 08. That's for sure. And then how were you feeling though? Uh, We'll get to this, I'm sure, in our next episode as we delve into it further. But how were you feeling after you won the first two games of that season? <laughs> <laughs> All of a sudden, you were pretty confident, weren't you? Yeah, especially too. And, and you know, with those, uh, you know, the way the the wings were using the backboards, you know, Julio Serena. Oh man, like it's funny to think back on just how much of a advantage those were. Just how you could literally that the Red Wings had plays based off you know, those end boards in terms of, uh, you know, being able to just, you know, make plays that way. And so they knew how to use them and the, the Penguins didn't. And so that alone, it's like, all right, they have home ice advantage. Even if this goes to seven, we'll probably be in good shape, which, you know, later learned that we were not in good shape. Well, that is when we will join you next to talk about game number three. The first two games, obviously, we'll recap as well as we dive into the 2009 Stanley Cup final. First of all, this was a lot of fun, guys, going back down memory, hearing all the stories. I hope our listeners enjoy it as well. It was a great time. Thanks a lot, you guys. Yeah, it's been great. Great stories, guys. Good sharing. Yeah, this is awesome. It's like I said before, it's been weird to reflect on my Red Wings fandom, but a lot of fun to have 
you know, just perspective and, and think about all these memories. And talking to you guys, it's been great. I'm like that men in black situation where they're like, you were never a Flyers fan, and they hold this in front of your face <laughs> and just like delete it from your memory. That's, that's kind of where I'm at right now. So, uh, as far as I'm concerned, it never happened. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but we are looking forward to bringing you our next episode. That's going to be right in line with game number three with all of the classics that are being re-aired for the Penguins across uh, AT&T Sportsnet, Penguins Radio Network, PittsburghPenguins.com. There's a ton of different uh, avenues for everyone out there to check it out. So uh, we'll talk to you then. For Michelle Crecciolo, Sam Kassan, and Paul Staggerwald, I'm Josh Getzoff, and this has been the Scoop Rewind brought to you by PPG.